The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Managing Disorders of Hypersomnolence, Reducing Patient Burdens, Protecting Patient Health. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash JKX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to this educational activity where Dr. Richard K. Bogan discusses the diagnosis, classification, and treatment of narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia. Today, we're going to talk about sleepiness, actually with specific reference to two disorders of central hypersomnolence. The first one is narcolepsy. The other one is idiopathic hypersomnia. And I'm actually going to share a couple of cases with you. But before we do that, I thought I would talk a little bit about sleep-wake processes. I think we have to put that in perspective. The first thing is that sleep is a fundamental homeostatic process. And by that, you've got to sleep in order to survive. And if you don't sleep, what will happen is that your brain is not only sleepy and tired, but you have problems with executive function, thinking, memory, speed of processing, motivation is affected, even mood is affected. And of course, downstream, that affects productivity, social interaction, workplace performance, and even the potential for fatigue-related accidents. So how does our brain control that? We actually have a clock right behind the eyes. The clock is called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. That particular nucleus is hardwired to our eyes. Actually, we have photoreceptors in our eyes. So when the clock turns on, we open our eyes, we get light, it resets the clock. The clock runs about 15 hours. And then what the clock does is it sends a signal down deep in the dorsolateral hypothalamus. Not a lot of neurons, about 100,000 neurons. And those neurons, when they get excited, they make orexin. This is a neuropeptide. And that particular molecule, neuropeptide, then branches out to different subcenters. So as those neurons are active, stimulated by this orexin neuropeptide, we're wide awake, we're functioning, we're eating, we're reproducing, um, we're protecting ourselves, we're working and have family, etc. But then as the day goes on, the sun sets. And that change in intensity and color of the light sends a signal to our brain to begin to make a neurotransmitter, which is called GABA. We also have something called dim light melatonin onset. So when the sunset occurs, we make melatonin, the melatonin levels rise, turn the clock off, we make GABA, and GABA turns off all those awake neurons, so we go to sleep. So there is an interaction between this fundamental homeostatic drive, uh, which we call wakefulness, and then there's this um, interaction between our circadian drive. So our circadian drive run by the clock keeps us awake in the daytime, and we can see those particular interactions about when we are awake and when we get to sleep. So these are very important. When we do sleep, we have an ultradian rhythm. The ultradian rhythm is, means we sleep in 90-minute buckets. So we kind of go down deep, and then we dream. And then we go down deep, and we dream. And part of that relates to the GABA turning off our awake neurons, and part of it relates to the fact that those awake chemicals drop off when they do. After a certain period of time, then the REM generator, the dreaming generator, pops in, and we begin to dream. And you can see that in the ultradian rhythm. And when you look at the examples of uh, narcolepsy patients, you can see this very disrupted sleep and you can also see REM intrusion. And so these individuals are not only sleepy, but they have disrupted nocturnal sleep and these REM dissociative symptoms. 
So one of the ways we think about that is that when we are dreaming, we're paralyzed. We can't move. So in narcolepsy patients, not only do they complain of excessive sleepiness, but they complain of these REM-related phenomena, vivid dreams. They may wake up and the dream is still going on, so they may feel paralyzed, or they may actually hear or see the dream, which we call a hallucination. And that can occur when you're falling asleep or when you're waking up. So we call those hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations. You can also have REM intrusion in, in the daytime. And if the REM generator pops in in the daytime because it's disinhibited, then we can have cataplexy, which is a sudden loss of muscle tone, usually brought on by sudden emotion, laughter being the most common. Why does that happen? We think that happens because those orexin neurons have been injured. And when we don't have orexin neurons, then we have state instability. The awake circuits are not propped up by this neuropeptide. And so neither wakefulness nor sleep are stable. In idiopathic hypersomnia, we're not really quite sure what's going on here. But, but what we think, and the current operational theory, is that the GABA that you make at night to put you to sleep is supposed to turn off. And so these individuals have either unusually sensitive GABA receptors or the GABA doesn't turn off. They tell us that they have brain fog all through the day. They want to take a nap. If they do take a nap, it's two or three hours. And when they awaken, they're still sleepy. And um, it's hard to wake up again. So they go back through that sleep inertia that they had before. Now, I'm going to introduce you to two patients one of whom is Melissa. Melissa actually presented to me in her teenage years. She um, really in middle school began to have problems with excessive sleepiness. She would tell me that um, she would fall asleep in class. She was smart, but she would fall asleep in class even though she was interested. Always when she got home from school, she would take a nap. She didn't really participate in athletics because she was too tired. She was too sleepy. And interestingly... She had cataplexy. So she would have episodes of sudden emotion. She would all of a sudden melt into the floor. She'd lose lose muscle tone. Interestingly, her brother used to love to surprise her because he would sneak up on her and surprise her, and he, he liked seeing her have cataplexy. Interestingly, too, she said that she had very vivid dreams. It was like going to a movie. And she would dream all night long and she would wake up a lot and she would sometimes see the dream, hallucinate. And sometimes she woke up and she felt paralyzed. She had some pretty scary stories, as a matter of fact, about people walking into the room and hearing them walk into the room and sit on the bed and touch her. And she couldn't move. The other patient is a a young man who was not so young at the time that I saw him. But he, when he was a young man, He had sleepiness, and he saw a specialist who said, you have attention deficit disorder because you can't think and focus, so I'm going to give you a little methylphenidate, which is commonly used for attention deficit disorder, and it helped. It helped him, and he took it for a long time, went to college and became an engineer, but finally came to me because his boss was beginning to complain about he was having trouble getting his work done, and at They had a lot of meetings as an engineer, and he would fall asleep. Um, And he would tell me he had trouble getting to work in the morning because he'd set multiple alarms and just could not get going. It took a long time. And then when he was driving to work, he was sleepy 
after a good night's sleep, he was still sleepy. Now, he did not have any of the REM dissociative symptoms, did not have the vivid dreams, the paralysis, the hallucinations. But oftentimes on the weekend, he would sleep the weekend away, which is sort of typical for a patient with idiopathic hypersomnia. Uh, We've talked about sleepiness not only in terms of the fatigue and sleepiness, but the downstream effect in terms of workplace performance, quality of life, accidents are significant. And in narcolepsy, uh, there are comorbidities that may be present in narcolepsy disorder. We're not sure exactly why. Most of this is observational and based on claims data from insurance companies, but could be related to the orexin deficiency because orexin not only helps keep you awake, but affects the hypothalamic pituitary axis, so it affects sympathetic tone, affects our body temperature, feeding, heart rate, blood pressure. So if you have abnormalities in orexin signaling, then you may have other abnormalities. You may have cardiovascular abnormalities, and that's what we see. We see that these individuals tend to be uh, bigger. They're, they're obese. Their body mass index is higher. They have more diabetes. They have more hypertension. They have more heart disease maybe have even more autoimmune disorders. So it's important for us to take that into account when we see these individuals and as we consider our therapeutic options and recognize that these may be other problems. The other, of course, is mood disturbance. These individuals, probably over 35% with narcolepsy, have depression or anxiety, which certainly is reasonable when you think about living in a a productive society and you're sleepy. When we think about... um, Idiopathic hypersomnia, some of those individuals may have some what we call autonomic instability. So they may have these episodes of syncope or near syncope. Um, They struggle to wake up in the morning, as I mentioned before, with this sleep inertia issues. And because of this, again, they have major self-esteem issues. We, We, of course, when we're evaluating these individuals and trying to figure out how to diagnose them, we ask them about other conditions. Do they have a medical disorder, diabetes, or hypothyroidism, or do they have a psychiatric disorder? And many of them do have a comorbid psychiatric disorder. Is that the problem? So we're kind of detectives as clinicians in terms of trying to find these individuals and and figure out what they are. So think about Melissa. When I saw her, she did not talk about the dreams or the paralysis or the hallucinations. Because she was like, one, this is just me. She thought everybody did that. And, um, and she was worried about talking about the hallucinations because someone would think she's crazy. And, um, but because of the syncope, the cataplexy, she actually was sent to a neurologist to rule out seizure disorders. Um, she was sent to a cardiologist to rule out syncope, cardiovascular syncope. She was sent to a psychiatrist to see if she had a conversion reaction. Um, Was her depression or anxiety impacting some of this? Eventually, uh, we saw her, and we did a sleep study on her to make sure nothing else was going on, and we did a series of NAP studies. We call them multiple sleep latency tests. And the multiple sleep latency tests, I tell the patients, this is an opportunity to see how your brain keeps you awake in the daytime when there's no sensory input. So we put you in a dark room, lights out, close your eyes, see what your brain does. And it gives me some idea how those neurotransmitters are working. In narcolepsy, she fell asleep instantly. 
And in fact, we, we sampled her throughout the day at two hour intervals and she fell asleep in less than three minutes. As soon as we turned the lights out, she fell asleep. The interesting thing is, is she dreamed almost immediately. And you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to dream in the daytime. It's supposed to take 60 plus minutes of sleep before you start dreaming. So that's one of the ways we make the diagnosis by doing the multiple sleep latency tests. We made the diagnosis in her that she has narcolepsy type one. And so she had these symptoms of fatigue, sleepiness, cataplexy, mood disturbance, REM dissociative symptoms. And when we explained that to her, I mean, she was relieved because now she had an opportunity to to really be addressed from a therapeutic perspective and improve that. So what about Andrew? Andrew was taking methylphenidate, which was helping. But when he finally began to have problems, we talked to him about uh, his other disorders. I mean, here's a family man, actively employed, uh, a very smart fellow. He went through college, sleepy. He went through college. And um, so we finally got him in, figured out what was going on, did a sleep study, multiple sleep latency tests. In his case, which was typical for idiopathic hypersomnia, his sleep efficiency was phenomenal. When he sleeps, he sleeps. His sleep efficiency was like 94%. Sleep stage distribution was within normal limits. And then when we did the multiple sleep latency test, he fell asleep with each nap opportunity as well. So when you remove sensory input, person falls asleep. And the latency was on average about five minutes, but he did not dream. Um, So we were able to make that diagnosis. So we have a nosology. We have a rule book uh, that says, okay, if you have narcolepsy, you're sleepy, you don't have another disorder, and oh, by the way, you may or may not have cataplexy, type 1 or type 2, but if I do a sleep test on you, you'll fall asleep in less than eight minutes, and I'm likely to see at least two sleep-onset REM episodes. You dream in the daytime, which means something's wrong in terms of the sleep-wake stability in these individuals. So type 1, type 2... The other is that if I do a spinal tap and you have type 1, you have no orexin or very low orexin levels. So the orexin is part of the pathophysiology, and it may have something to do, as I said before, with the comorbidities. We don't know for sure. Type 2 is just like the type 1, but no cataplexy. What about the idiopathic hypersomnia? Well, the idiopathic hypersomnia is not narcolepsy. So when we do the NAP studies, we don't see the, the dreaming. You might see one but you certainly don't see two dreams. We've ruled out other disorders. You don't have sleep apnea. You don't have restless legs, periodic leg movements. You're getting enough sleep. It's not insufficient sleep. It's not circadian misalignment. It's not a psychiatric abnormality. It's not because you're abusing drugs. It's not because you're taking a lot of sedating medicines. You are intrinsically sleepy. And we call that idiopathic hypersomnia. So the the multiple sleep latency test is not abnormal. The clues are the sleep inertia. So that's idiopathic hypersomnia, very different from narcolepsy. And again, diagnostically, we want to make sure nothing else is going on medically, psychiatrically, you're getting enough sleep. It's not like you're a night owl or an early bird or or other things. And we typically will do the sleep study, the nap studies. When I follow you over a period of time, I'm going to do an Epworth score. Epworth score is eight simple questions. How likely are you to doze off under these circumstances? My Epworth score is six. It's less than 10. The Epworth score in a narcolepsy patient is typically 16, 17, 18 out of 24. Um, In these common situations, they're likely to doze. 
We also do a, a modified FOSQ, Functional Outcomes of Sleep Quality Questionnaire. Gives us an idea. We do a fatigue severity score, and I actually do an insomnia index in these patients because the insomnia index sort of gives me some idea of the, of the disrupted nocturnal sleep. You can say, well, why on earth insomnia index? These people can sleep anytime they want to. But remember, the narcolepsy patients do have disrupted nocturnal sleep. Well, what do we do when we're going to treat these individuals? Well, obviously, the sleepiness is the big thing. The burden of the illness when the speed of processing of the brain is affected by the sleepiness. And so we need to find medicines that will help with the sleepiness. And we have those. We also, particularly in narcolepsy, want to address the disrupted nocturnal sleep. We want these individuals to sleep better. We don't want them to have all these REM dissociative symptoms. Over 65% say, I need something for sleep. Um, and then the idiopathic hypersomnia, we want them to be able to awaken in the morning, feel refreshed, be alert during the day, have good self-esteem and speed of processing and remember uh, functioning. So those are really important things for us to do. And then we also want to address the impact of the sleepiness in terms of their psychosocial function and workplace performance and social interaction because so many of these individuals are significantly Im impacted. If we treat the sleepiness, then we're going to see improvement in all those executive function aspects that I, that I talked about. And behaviorally, the best thing for sleepiness is sleep. So we want to make sure that they understand circadian rhythm, the, how the brain wakes up, how it goes to sleep, what's happening to these neurotransmitters, and what they can do behaviorally in terms of making sure that they are entrained because the medicines work on the, the brain's intrinsic neurotransmitters and that in turn helps them stay more awake or sleep better at night. We also warn them about, you know, what causes cataplexy and what, what are some strategies that they can do. We also use medicines. Um, some of the medicines that we use uh, have been approved by the FDA and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine actually has guidelines based on evidence-based pivotal trial uh, data and of course, uh, modafinil, armodafinil are drugs that have been around since the late 1990s. Those are wakefulness-promoting medications that work on some of those subcenters, primarily dopamine, we believe, in terms of activating neurons and keeping you awake. We also um, use Schedule II drugs, methylphenidate and amphetamines, because those also stimulate dopamine release and, and um, enhance daytime alertness. We worry about those because those can be abused and misused and diverted, um, but they can be effective. We now have uh, Solreamphetol, which has been available for a few years, and that hits dopamine and norepinephrine, so you remember those downstream neurotransmitters, that hits two of them. Uh, it has good effect size in terms of enhancing alertness when we did our research studies on these individuals, and we looked at the Epworth score, and we looked at something like the MSLT called the maintenance of wakefulness test, we, we saw that these individuals were able to be more awake. So we also have patolosant. Patolosant hits histamine. So remember, histamine is real important for maintaining alertness. Antihistamines make you drowsy. Histamine keeps you alert. And patolosant was developed in Europe initially, and it was found to help not only the excessive sleepiness, but the cataplexy as well. Most alerting medications don't affect cataplexy, but patolosant is one that does. And we have sodium oxabate. 
sodium oxabate is, oxabate molecule is metabolized to GHB. Your brain makes GHB. It's an important inhibitory neurotransmitter. You're like, wait a minute, this makes me sleepy. I take it at night. Why would I give this to a patient? What we know is that it does inhibit dopamine and norepinephrine. It makes you sleepy. So at night, it seems to inhibit those alerting neurotransmitters, and then when it wears off, they upregulate. So oxabate has been shown to treat all the aspects of narcolepsy. It treats the sleepiness because it's easy to wake up in the morning. They're, the patients say, Doc, I'm not as sleepy. My cataplexy has gone away and, or is much better if you're a responder, and the disrupted sleep and the REM dissociative symptoms, acting out the dreams, the vivid dreams, the paralysis, the hallucinations, all improve with oxabate. So oxabate is a, is a unique molecule uh, that we use, and we'll talk about that uh, some more. But oxabate was approved in 2002 initially for cataplexy, but we saw our patients were less sleepy. And then later on, there was a supplemental new drug uh, application, and it was approved a couple of years later to treat excessive sleepiness as well. Problem, it's sodium oxabate. So sodium oxabate is just the way the molecule was formulated. It's a liquid, and this allows good shelf life, and it allows you to be able to change the dose in individuals. I won't get, quite get into the dosing, but um, we use typically between six and nine grams a night. That's over a gram of sodium, and it can be up to 1,600 milligrams, over 1,600 milligrams. And it's recommended that we only have about 2,300 milligrams of sodium a day in our diet. So we worry about these narcolepsy patients who have hypertension, potential for hypertension, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and we're giving them all this sodium. And we now have a lower sodium oxabate preparation, which I'll go into in just a moment. What we also know is that the REM generator in the brain is sensitive to uh, other neurotransmitters. They're inhibited by orexin. They also are inhibited by norepinephrine and serotonin. So if we use an SNRI, then we may suppress this REM generator, and that helps with the cataplexy. So we, we use those off-label um, in some patients who can't take oxabate or who cannot take patolosant. We might use SNRIs to help reduce the cataplexy. The problem with that is if the patient skips the drug, they may get rebound cataplexy. So if they run out on Friday or Monday, the cataplexy comes back with a vengeance. So again, I talked to you about the sodium burden and these individuals, the comorbidities. I think those are all very important, but now we have a lower sodium oxabate. It's basically a calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium oxabate. It's the same active moiety, but um, it's metabolized to uh, GHB in the brain. Your brain will make that, as I said before, but now it's 92% less sodium. So it does the same thing, and in the studies, we actually did some studies transitioning narcolepsy patients from sodium oxabate to the lower oxabate preparation. And pretty much we used the equivalent dose. It was the same dose. It's a liquid. Draw it up the same, same volume. So it's easy for the patients to make that transition. And we had at least two studies where we looked at this transition, the ease of the patients, and it really uh, worked very well. So this lower oxabate preparation um, certainly is now, at least in my mind, a preference because of the lower sodium exposure in these individuals. The other is that um, the efficacy of the lower oxabate preparation was well studied. In fact, the FDA approved 
and, and actually said, this is a breakthrough medication because it works in narcolepsy with cataplexy or without cataplexy, and it's a lower sodium. So it seems to be uh, a molecule where we have less sodium exposure um, in these individuals. The side effect profile is pretty much the same as we had with sodium oxabate. So any CNS drug, we could have headache, dizzy, nausea. We, of course, we don't want patients to have over-sedation um, as well. Now, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has now come out with some guidelines in terms of what we might do for idiopathic hypersomnia. We had no drugs approved for idiopathic hypersomnia by the FDA. Now we have one, and that's the lower uh, oxabate preparation has been approved. It was studied and approved last year. We do have recommendations for other drugs, and in one of those is methylphenidate. So Andrew was on methylphenidate. It helped him, but he was still sleepy. And remember that when Andrew was falling asleep, even on the methylphenidate, we actually put him on the lower oxabate preparation. And his, he was a responder, not all the responders. But when he responded, he was like, Doc, boom, when it wears off, I wake up. I have no trouble waking up, a little trouble waking up, but not near what I had before. And I feel more alert throughout the day. And the methylphenidate works better. Um, so we have methylphenidate, we have modafinil, we have other drugs that had conditional uh, uh, recommendations from the American Academy. They're not approved by the FDA, but they inhibit GABA. One of those is clarithromycin because some people, when they take clarithromycin, it's an antibiotic, they have insomnia. So it inhibits GABA. So we have GABA-inhibiting drugs. And, uh, and there's a, a little evidence about patolosant currently uh, being studied as a possible but not approved. The only drug we have approved is the lower oxabate preparation. And we did a really uh, a nice study taking patients with idiopathic hypersomnia. They were on stimulants. Whatever their stimulant was at that time, they, they stayed on it, but they were still sleepy. We put them on this lower oxabate preparation, and then we titrated because you start at a low dose, four and a half grams, then you titrate up to, to response. And then we had them on a stable period of time and to see how they were doing, and then blinded, placebo-controlled study, half of them went on placebo, half of them stayed on the drug, and lo and behold, they got sleepy again when they went to placebo. So blinded, we had statistical significance that they were less sleepy. We used a scale called the idiopathic hypersomnia severity scale, which also allowed us to look at how these patients were doing from a quality of life perspective, their sleep inertia, the, f- the brain fog, the executive function, and that improved with a lower oxabate preparation. And the FDA looked at this data and the drug was approved and now is the only approved drug to treat patients with idiopathic hypersomnia. But look at those baseline studies. They're really very valuable. As I said, Andrew responded very nicely. So let's think about Melissa. Uh, what did we do with her? She couldn't take modafinil or modafinil primarily because of birth control pills. It's metabolized through the 3A4 system and it reduces the effectiveness of oral contraceptives. So we put her on sorreamphetol and she titrated up to 150 milligrams, which is where most narcolepsy patients are. And um, she had improvement. She did take a little tiny rescue dose in the afternoon of methylphenidate, but she was still having the cataplexy. So we did put her on the lower oxabate preparation and her response was, wow, 
the dreams are now, I still dream, but they're not like going to a movie. The sleep paralysis, the hallucinations are all gone. I don't have any trouble waking up. I still need something to wake me up in the daytime, but I'm more easily awakened and the medicines work better. Um, and my cataplexy, I still have a little bit of cataplexy if I have a really strong emotion, but I don't worry about it. And so she responded well enough that she now is in college and actually doing very well and likely will go to pharmacy school because she's that smart. So um, you can see how these patients, as they evolved over the years, the delay in diagnosis, the burden of the illness. Think about being sleepy every day of your life and the impact that these individuals had and the response as we went through this journey in terms of therapy. So the take-home messages are that sleepiness is present with a high degree of prevalence. But these chronic disorders of central hypersomnolence, narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia, have a huge burden on these individuals. And the delay in diagnosis can be a decade. And when you think about Andrew saying at 55, saying, wow, what could I have done in college if I had been awake? (laughs) So the burden of the illness in these individuals is huge. And remember that sleepiness impacts the executive function and mood and productivity and social interaction. So as we think about that and how we can recognize these individuals, and again, if you don't know what a disorder is, if you don't know what narcolepsy is or idiopathic hypersomnia, you're not going to diagnose In fact, most patients are misdiagnosed or delayed in diagnosis. They're treated for mood disturbance or other things. You can see what Melissa went through before she was diagnosed. We have great treatments now that can improve the quality of life of these individuals and improve their social interaction and productivity. So thank you for your time. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JKX860. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals.